Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Right, thanks for downloading the last podcast episode of 2022. It's been a great year for the pod, and I really like to thank you all for listening in, downloading, and spreading the news. So, we're going to finish off a good one again. So, uh, our guest today is a former Royal Engineer who joined the Army as a boy soldier and left as a commissioned officer. Uh, For those that don't know, the Royal Engineers helped the Army to live, move and fight by increasing survivability, mobility and counter-mobility and we'll be discussing each of those in turn during the podcast discussion. However, our main focus is going to be on Royal Engineer search teams as this is where he spent the majority of his career. But as normal, we'll start off with the guest's backstory and why he joined the Sappers. Well, first of all, guys, uh, thanks very much for having me on. Really, uh, really love what you're doing with this podcast, and I'm very grateful for having the opportunity to participate. Um, yeah, so I joined the Royal Engineers in 1984 as a, a boy soldier, so uh, just shy of my 17th birthday. Um, the choice of Royal Engineers is a uh, is a strange one, I guess, because my stepfather had been in the Royal Artillery, um, funnily enough, and. Uh, he he was very keen that I didn't follow in in his footsteps, although he was clearly very supportive about me joining the army, and he was very keen that um, that I angled to try and get a, a trade out of my time in the army. So the Royal Engineers was a was a an ob- fairly obvious choice for me. I I grew up in Farnborough, um, just north of Aldershot, so there was a very heavy parachute regiment influence uh, locally, um, and I kind of toyed with the idea briefly i guess of joining the um the junior parachute company as was back then um but very much early doors settled on the royal engineers my brother had joined the royal navy about four years previously and um, when i'd been down to see his 
passing in parade, etc. You know, I, was, I thought the military career was um, was something I was really interested in. I'd always been fairly army barmy as a kid. You know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, heavily influenced by you know all the Sven Hassel books, the Leo Kessler books that we all read as a kid, the comics like Warlord and Battle. It was all very um, military orientated. Uh, and then when the Falklands War came along in 1982. When I'd be 14 years old, uh, very, very captivated by that whole, the nationalistic fervour of, of, you know, the last sort of empire war, if you like, and and sailing 8,000 miles down south. Um, And I still view what what the British Army and the the Navy and the RAF did back in 1982 as just one of the most amazing military feats. So to see that at that age... Uh, age 14 that was a real heavily influence on me and I think that's that cemented my uh, ambitions to join the military and then as soon as I left school um, that was it down to the careers office in order shop and enlisted in the Royal Engineers uh, did a couple of jobs um, marking time um, then I enlisted on 31st of October 1984 and um, jumped on the train marched off to um, to Dover where the junior leaders Royal Engineers Regiment was based at the time what was your role with the Royal Engineers? What operations did you deploy on? We all trained as combat engineers. That's your sort of foundation uh, skill um, that all Royal Engineers back then would be trained upon. So uh, those sorts of basic field engineering skills of, you know, concreting and being able to use small hand tools to um, uh, to, to cut timber, uh, lay block work and that type of stuff. Um but also things like field defences, so learning how to dig trenches and and put in the various revetments in case we had to prepare uh, field defences for other units, not just ourselves. Uh, mine warfare was a was a big thing back then in the Cold War uh, days. Very much uh, Royal Engineers having a responsibility of laying large barrier minefields uh, mechanically um, rather than by hand. Um, but also breaching minefields as well. So um, those are two particular skills we focused very heavily on back in the 80s. Uh, Demolitions has always been one of our core skills, uh, particularly learning how to blow up various bridges. You guys will be aware of the number of waterways that exist in, in sort of Western Germany, and that was definitely one of our primary roles back then was to blow up the bridges to slow down the enemy as they tried to uh, to push us back. So uh, demolitions is always one of the favourites for the guys. You know, blowing things up was was always great. And it's not difficult to incentivise young soldiers to um, to learn those types of skills. Uh, a lot of the bridges over there had pre-drilled as part of the construction. I'm right in thinking they had pre-drilled charge holes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we called them measles shafts. So these were pre-prepared uh, shafts into the bridge abutments that would be constructed at the time that the bridges were built themselves in anticipation of this type of scenario. And then all that would happen would be, in the event of an all-out war, local uh, sort of defence volunteers from the German population would store explosive charges. Uh, and then all the British Army would have to do was go uh, have a ready access to pre-cast explosive charges, which would then be sunk into these measles shafts. And then all we had to do was initiate those charges and the bridge abutments and the bridges and would be denied to the enemy. So absolutely, it was very much in the psyche of of the sort of NATO forces at the time to to make sure when everything like that was built, that they also factored in a method of destroying it as well. 
total different world when you think about it, the Cold War, that you, you, you built everything, constructed everything with a view to the Western group of forces coming over the border. Well, do you remember, I, I remember being on exercise in the 80s and you would see the Royal Engineers come in and physically plough up and plant biodegradable mines mm. into the, the bar mines. I don't know what that was called. They had a, I think it was a big bar mine layer they had. and it, they, they would lay actual mines that would just you know, biodegrade later on and just that attention to detail that we did back then on huge exercises. Yeah, those biodegradables were, yeah, just cardboard filled with sands that were the same weight as the live version of bar mine. So the bar mine, bar mine is a, a fairly strange looking mine that, you know, we all think anti-tank mines as being cylindrical dinner plate size and shape. Uh, but the bar mine was what we, we termed as a full width attack mine. So it was a lot slimmer. It was about 1.2 meters long uh, and probably about five inches wide would weigh about 10.4 kilograms with about an 8.2 kilogram explosive weight so quite a powerful anti-tank mine but was was very very wide so therefore you could cover a broader frontage with fewer mines so yeah you're absolutely right colin we had these training mines which were filled with sand very representative of the live version which enabled us to so using the bar mine layer, which is like a conveyor belt with a plough on it. So you would plough a furrow in the ground and then down this this conveyor belt, you would feed these mines. Clearly, if we were going to do that using the drill version, uh, we would have to recover them because they cost money. But with the biodegradable ones, we could just leave them in the ground and then they would degrade over time. So a really, really useful way of um, of us you know, training realistically, but without the gnaws of then going back and digging these things up later. As we just pointed out, mine warfare, a big thing for us uh, back then. But we had some other skills such as watermanship. So we would all learn how to operate outboard motors uh, and small assault craft so we could get across a lot of those canals and waterways that existed in Germany at the time. Uh, and, and water supply, so providing potable water for battle groups uh, and producing brigade water points. Um, so large collapsible tanks, we would use pumps to draw water from the canals and the lakes. We would filter that water, we would sterilize it, and then we would store it in in uh, big sort of large collapsible tanks, rubber tanks, that could then provide this potable water um, for battle groups as they were feeding feeding through the brigade water point and getting replenned in, in that essential commodity of, you know, of actual water, which you can imagine in times of war would be a could potentially be quite a scarce commodity. And then, and then one of the other things that I thought we did exceptionally well back then was um, was bridging. For us, we could either use our basic field engineering skills to make bridges that were what we would term as non-equipment, so using everyday items that we might find lying around to construct a bridge over a canal, uh, to using the medium girder bridge, which you guys I'm sure would have seen in your time in Germany, uh, able us, enable us to bridge across a 30 metre wet gap in about an hour and a half. So it's a big Meccano type uh, set of four to six man lift pieces of uh, aluminium alloy, which would all bolt and pin together uh, to produce this quite large, very durable bridge over those waterways. So all those skills that I've just mentioned there, we would combine you know, into this combat engineer capability, which um, we used to say that what we provided was the Army's ability to live, move and fight. And that was sort of broken down into capability themes, um, which we like to refer to as survivability, mobility uh, and counter-mobility. 
So in the survivability theme, we're talking about the water supply I've just mentioned there, providing potable water and the construction skills that we had to maybe provide, you know, some structures and, and other things like that that might be beneficial in wartime. Mobility, the gap crossing that I've just been talking about there, bridging those gaps, breaching through minefields, uh, laying trackway over ground that might have been churned up by uh, lots of use by um, armoured vehicles uh, and booby trap clearance. That was a skill that um, we probably could have practiced more. It was always quite challenging to find realistic opportunities to do that. But that would have been a skill I think we're seeing now in, in Ukraine, certainly. The place is riddled with booby traps, and that's the sort of Soviet doctrine. Oh, the Russian doctrine would have been the same Soviet doctrine back then. So I think that would have been a skill set that we would have been called upon quite a, quite a lot um, had the, the worst thing happened back in the 80s. Uh, and then the counter mobility is the bridge demolitions. It's blowing up those bridges, uh, laying the minefields and conducting route denial tasks. So that live, move and fight, capability themes, survivability, mobility and counter mobility. Yeah, are these, are these still the core skills of the Royal Engineers? Yeah, very much so. Clearly, the Royal Engineers' capabilities have changed significantly over the last sort of 30, 40 years. Um, but essentially, it still is distilled back to those those absolutely core skills which the sappers bring to the battlefield. So the live, move, fight bit, the survivability, mobility and counter mobility still stands good and firm. It's just the manner in which we deliver those uh, mm. clearly has changed. It's interesting you mentioned about sort of that bridging capability. I've just read a book about an armoured regiment in the Second World War by James Holland and in it he sort of digresses a little bit and talks about how the Germans when they did their tank design it was focused on massive heavy big tanks but they had no bridging capability where every vehicle and tank that the British used could go across the standard bridge that they had. Little things like that can make a huge difference in, in manoeuvre warfare. And it's just interesting that that bridging capability is still seen important all the way through to the modern age. Yeah, and I've read that book myself, Brothers in Arms, isn't it, about the Sherwood Rangers yeah. in World War Two? Absolutely book. fascinating read, fascinating read, really, really good. And yeah, and yeah one of the areas that um, one of our trades in the Royal Engineers was uh, an armoured engineer. We had, a, at the time, back in the in the 80s, we had a single regiment based in Germany that was uh, armoured engineer regiment. And clearly, uh, those that regiment would get broken up and, and various troops and squadrons would be assigned to divisions and, and brigades and battle groups. Um, but they were the, the armoured bridging capability. So they would have armoured vehicle Royal Engineers, um, some of which would be you know, quite old variants. Actually, we were trundling around in Centurion tanks, which are you know only just post World War II. Um, and those tanks had a 165 millimeter turret and gun uh, mounted on that Centurion chassis. Uh, so it's a big demolition gun. So if we were to demolish a bridge using explosives, but it it hadn't quite maybe dropped um, sufficiently or could still potentially be be used, then we could use that 165 millimeter to uh, to hurl some pretty large ordnance at the bridge and, and demolish it and it was also a great bunker buster i think as they found out in world war ii as well but alongside that we had our chieftain avaries which were able to use the scissor bridges so under the cover of armor without the need for dismounts to construct a bridge in contact we would be able to under the armor of those vehicles to to potentially uh bridge a gap you know again up to about 20 about 20 25 meters um in width 
So again, a, a great capability and something that the SAP has brought to the battlefield. These were all Cold War capabilities. And obviously 1990, 1991, the Cold War starts to come to an end. We moved on to the Gulf War. We moved into a new phase of operations. How did the Royal Engineers merge out the Cold War and how did things change for you? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Kev, because um, as we, we've, we're sort of highlighting that Cold War, um, sitting on the inner German border waiting for the for the Soviets to come across, all that very quickly changed when the you know the Berlin Wall came down and uh, and I guess for a period of time the army was kind of scratching its head and thinking, well, you know, where are we going to focus our efforts next? Yeah. There's always yeah. got to be something that that drives our equipment procurement processes and and future developments. Um, clearly, the first Gulf War came along, which was still very much using the capabilities that we'd honed during that Cold War era. Um, but once that was finished, we were, I suppose we were quite fortunate in many ways that um, the Balkans, you know, flared up and gave us, again, a focal point for our particular unique set of skills. Uh, and I think Bosnia in particular has often been described as the, the Sapper playground. And I think it, it really was for us uh, because it was an environment which we were stretched and tested. All our skills were being brought to bear, keeping those routes open under some very challenging conditions, both climatic and geographical conditions of uh, keeping those treacherous routes in that very mountainous terrain open so that we could still transit the, uh, the area of uh, operations um, safely building lots of uh, forward operating bases, keeping them uh, with electricity, keeping them with potable water. So all our skills were very, very much focused in in providing that, uh, you know, helping the army to live, move, and not so much fight back then, but we needed to have the capability, certainly, to protect ourselves. Uh, and then on top of that, because of the very large explosive remnants of war uh, contamination of the uh, the whole country, then our EOD assets uh, started to really come into their own. And, and I think that was where, certainly in the Royal Engineers, the EOD teams um, started to really find a, a role for themselves. Because up to that point, probably largely been sat back in the UK, just dealing with German World War II airdrops, munitions that would fairly regularly get dug up by construction companies you know mm. uh, in in large cities like you know like Birmingham and and like Coventry and, and, and obviously London from the Blitz um, so all of a sudden they had this overseas um, role supporting the, the troops on the ground so uh, so yeah very much so uh, a, a great theatre for our EOD assets to to really start to hone their craft and, and, and broaden their level of expertise uh, because that was a country that certainly had had its fair share of uh, of fighting and therefore the inevitable uh, explosive remnants of war contamination that follows a conflict of that scale. Do you think it was a quick transition from the Royal Engineers side, from the command element to, to look at the Cold War, the conventional war, moving to another conventional war, but obviously in a slightly different role, but where, one where, like you say, you, you're, the, you're the key element to, to keeping, to sustaining operations on the ground. Yeah, I think um, I think we were fortunate that because it was a, a peak back then, and certainly in the early days, it was a you know a uh, under a UN mandate, uh, and therefore the time imperative to to switch from one role to another role was was less. It, you know, we weren't going from you know 
high intensity conflict, we were in this peacekeeping peace support role. So we had the ability, I think, the time to make that transition and and find uh, find our own you know new direction of travel. Had we just gone straight from that into a very very different high intensity conflict, that would have been a, a far different challenge. Whereas this one, like I say, the the nature of the operation that we were involved upon, uh, involved in, gave us a little bit of breathing space to kind of because it it you know it escalated over a period of time, didn't it? Remember, it was quite yeah, low yeah. troop numbers initially, and then it inevitably escalated, and, and more and more troops were dragged in. And particularly when it changed to a NATO mission, then all of a sudden it was a different mandate. Troop numbers went significantly upwards. Um, but by that time, we'd we'd found our feet. We knew what was required, and we were able to, again, apply the vast array of skills that the sappers have to uh, to a very unique environment. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think looking back, it was a very proud period of time in the course history, without a doubt. You had the Cold War, then you had the Gulf War One, which you know the, the Royal Engineers were heavily involved in. So you've got all these very high skill levels operating at a divisional level. In some respects, it's easier then when you come to what happened in Bosnia and Kosovo to scale down. But I think then, later on, scaling back up as we approached the sort of the war on terror, it became a lot more difficult. I just wonder what your thoughts on that were. It was a- yeah, again, it's a really good point. Um, I think we, we were always guilty you know, of trying to fight the last conflict. You know, that, that shapes all our sort of military thinking. Um, and we've seen that more recently with Afghanistan, particularly when it's a, over a prolonged period of time, like those campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. All our force structures, all the equipment procurement programs tend to be centred on those particular battles which we have to to prevail. We're not like the Americans where we got this vast military might where you can have different organizations that have different roles and different functions. You know, we're a very small military and and getting ever smaller. And therefore, you have to have this very flexible and agile military. When defense spending is constantly at risk of being cut, you you can't have everything you want. Um, And so it's a very interesting question that you ask. And when you reflect back over the number of different types of operation that we've we've been involved in the only thing you can guarantee is whatever however you posture yourself for the future whatever defense planning assumptions are made they're going to be wrong because we can i don't think we've ever really got it right where we've predicted the next type of conflict and we've got that one right well the last defense of you there'll be no major tank battles in in europe yeah, yeah. A case in point yeah. whereby you, you think you're providing this lightweight, agile force, and you can see the sense in that, but then all of a sudden something that you never would have predicted occurs, and you're thinking, right, we've got that wrong. We now need to readjust, replan for a different type of conflict. And that inevitably takes a huge amount of money, huge amount of time, and inevitably you don't have enough of either. Oh, absolutely, and I don't know if you saw some of the footage of the cock-ups the Russians made with their bridging capabilities. Lead up to this podcast, I was just revisiting some of that footage and their bridging capabilities and, and how they're trying to cross obstacles was going, has gone very badly astray. Yeah, I guess fortunately in many ways, but it, it, it is interesting to see other people making, you know, uh, committing similar errors, I guess. 
and they were the initiators of that particular conflict. So you would have liked to think they would have been a lot better prepared than, than they have been. So go back slightly on, onto the Bosnia piece. What, what was your role in Bosnia? I deployed just as the mission changed. You remember that the Dayton Peters Agreement was signed in December of 95, which changed it from a UN peacekeeping mission to this uh, peace support, NATO uh, peace support operation. So the force numbers went up uh, and at fairly short notice, um, quite a number of sort of sapper units were were earmarked to, to deploy. So my regiment, I was based down in Tidworth at the time. Uh, and I remember all our regiment was committing up till about December of 95 was, I think, one troop of, uh, of close support engineers going out. And then very quickly that changed to a whole squadron. So my squadron was um, was warned off uh, at fairly short notice. And we deployed out there, I think, in uh, in early spring of, of 96. I was a an engineer recce sergeant at the time. So we... There was about three of us in the squadron at the time. We were a little bit unsure of what our roles might be. You know, we're the kind of guys that just get uh, cast out by the the commanding officer or the or the officer commanding to to go and find um, what engineer tasks need doing and provide that initial feedback, that initial reconnaissance, and then write the reports that say this is what resources we need to complete this particular task. But in the early parts of the deployment, we uh, we were fairly unemployed, and it was a, a chance encounter for me personally where. I, um, uh, I was driving around um, with a, an officer that I knew from before, and we just happened to bump into the CO of the regiment who, that we were attached to at the time, who was um, who was Colonel Peter Wall at the time, who, who you may be familiar with his name, because he went on to be Chief of the General Staff later on. And, and as a result of that, I was um, sent down further, a lot further south than where my unit was based to take over uh, a, a discreet little operation which involved... Um, monitoring the former warring factions uh, in lifting their minefields that they'd laid. So as part of the date and peace agreement, you know, there's this mandate that all the former warring factions had to lift their own mines that they'd laid during the conflict. So I was put down into an area called Glamoch, uh, where there an awful lot of mines had been laid during the conflict, uh, particularly in the area of Livno Fields, which is a stunningly beautiful but very very large, flat-bottomed valley, so steep-sided mountains. Um, but on the bottom, it was about four miles wide. I mean, great tank country. So clearly lots and lots of anti-tank mines have been laid on the bottom of this valley floor, which the uh, the Bosnian Croats um, then had the responsibility of lifting. So one of the engineer recusants' jobs was to, to deploy into these areas to liaise with the, the local former warring factions uh, and then encourage them to lift their own minefields and then just supervise the destruction of those mines that were lifted. So we would, they were forbidden under the terms of the date and peace agreement from holding explosives. So we would provide those explosives accessories uh, for them to destroy the mines. So we would monitor what mines were coming out, make records, uh, and then obviously assist them in destroying those mines as well. So that was uh, that was a really interesting task for me to very early on in my six month tour to to have quite a lot of responsibility because it was just myself and my my team, you know, one um, armoured recce vehicle to deploy down into these areas and and with an awful lot of responsibility and autonomy to then make these uh, connections, build a trust based relationship 
with the former warring factions and then encourage them to, to get out into those minefields and, and conduct a, a relatively dangerous operation, which they, they weren't particularly incentivized to do. So you had to use a lot of your sort of diplomatic skills to encourage them and incentivize them to get out there and, um, and start doing the job that their, that their own government had signed them up to do. I wouldn't imagine they would have had many detailed mind maps or were they pretty good at keeping records? It varied. Um, it varied an awful lot from unit to unit and between the various different uh, warring factions. The uh, the Bosnian Croat unit that I worked with did keep very, very detailed records. I mean, some of them were masterpieces in sketching. You know, they would pull out a, like a A3 size minefield record, but it, it wouldn't be one that we would recognize drawn with a ruler and, you know, uh, lots of scales and north arrows. This thing would be a, a sketch, lots of color and stuff like that, that really brought the minefield to, to life. So um, actually, I was pleasantly surprised by the, the, the detail that was included in their records. And for the most part, the accuracy. The problem that we did encounter sometimes was that because minefields were laid and then more mines were laid on top of them and then minefields were reseeded with additional mines of different types as defenses were reinforced you might think you're looking at the most up-to-date minefield record and you're working off that only to find out that there was another one that showed more mines that had been superimposed on top of that existing minefield there wasn't a master you know there's no single version of the truth Um, and i counted that a couple of times Um, and i remember one time we were clearing a village in the Livno fields called Chelebich and uh, got out on the bonnet of my Land Rover, got out the minefield map and said, okay, this is where we are. Take some, you know, GPS, some grid references. And, and then the, the Croat team disappeared off down this trackway in their little blue uh, Larda Neva um, vehicle, which they were using at the time. And they disappeared around the bend and I stayed on the hard surface in the centre of the village. And then there was an explosion. And then about five minutes later, back came the Larda Neva, minus one wheel, buckled bonnet, you know, hobbling back down the track where it contacted an anti-personnel mine, which had um, pretty much damaged the wheel uh, and the chassis. And it, and it became obvious that it was just because the minefields that they were operating off weren't as accurate as they could have been, that there was other mines that had been laid over the top of them. So you, you almost had to assume a default position of don't trust any minefield records and, and just be very, very systematic and cautious in your approach. Yeah, I remember when I was there in 97 or 98, I can't remember which year, but it was, you just were brief, don't go off any hard standing. Yeah, and and after that tour, when I got, uh, I was posted as an instructor to um, the uh, training team at Copil Down, where one of my primary responsibilities was was training all the troops that were going out to the Balkans uh, in mine, mine awareness. And certainly that was the biggest mantra that we would have, which is, you know, unless you absolutely have to stay on the hard surfaces, because that's that's the safe area. Um, but inevitably, soldiers being soldiers will always find a reason to disobey the rules. And uh, and sometimes you couldn't help it. You know, if you suffered a, a road traffic incident and uh, and you found that, the, you know, the vehicle uh, left the road and, and maybe went into a, a, an uncleared area, then they needed the skills to be able to extract themselves, particularly if there was a casualty as a result of that uh, road traffic incident. So having those basic skills of, of understanding how mines work, where they're most likely to be, uh, to be laid and having that basic skills to be able to 
extract yourself back to a safe location on a hard surface and then potentially deal with the casualties was was critical core skills for everybody deploying out into the Balkans at the time, as you guys will will well remember. I think it's hard for people to to picture that in you know in, in a European country, there is still today potentially millions of mines still scattered across Bosnia because you can't find them all. You know, no, and they were ab- used, they were used right. willy-nilly throughout that, that campaign by both sides. The Falkland was only cleared about five years ago, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, declared. it was declared clear not even five years ago. Um, more like two or three, I think it was, that they finally turned around and said, yeah, we've... Um, we, we, we're fairly confident we've we've got everything. And the Falklands was a particularly uh, difficult place to, to clear because of the, the nature of the terrain, because it was bog and peat, is that mines were scattered fairly indiscriminately by, um, by the Argentinians in, in 1982. Uh, and even if they did make detailed records of where they put them because of the nature of the bog and the peat, um, the ground moves and shifts because it's very watery and boggy. So anti-personnel mines uh, in particular will often migrate. You know, they'll often move over a period of time and will, will pop up, you know, a lot uh, further away from where they were initially laid. And, and that was the same in, in Bosnia because it was so indiscriminate. Um, and a particular, you know, places that would uh, likely to be mined would be places like riverbanks, you know, where mm. people would go to draw water from to do their washing uh, and all the other bits and bobs that you would naturally do in a, in a, in a water course. So mines would often be laid on the riverbanks, but would then, with a large downpour of rain, that would wash the mines into the, the water course. They might flow downstream and then be washed upon a riverbank, you know, several kilometres away from where they were initially laid. Uh, and like you say, no matter how good your records are, when you actually lay them, um, not everybody abides by that same kind of um, that, that that same doctrine, and very indiscriminately laid throughout the entire country by all sides. After Bosnia, what was next? So, as I alluded to earlier on, I came back from the Bosnia tour and was posted to a training team, uh, where I was able to use my experience that I'd gained in Bosnia in in the minefields to to prepare and train the the next guys and keep them safe for the, for the next units that were deploying out to Bosnia. Um, so that was quite a rewarding period of time. And then uh, at the end of that, I was posted to uh, an explosive ordnance disposal regiment uh, in the Royal Engineers. At the time in the army, we had uh, two branches of the military that did uh, explosive ordnance disposal, bomb disposal, which was the Royal Logistic Corps had one regiment uh, and then the Royal Engineers had another regiment that did both explosive ordnance disposal and uh, high research tasks as well. So I was sent to uh, 3-3 Engineer Regiment, uh, which was this specialist bomb disposal and high research unit. I wasn't a volunteer. It wasn't something I asked to do, but as the Royal Engineers is prone to do, it likes to give you breadth as well as depth of experience and expertise. It doesn't like you to get too comfortable in, in a niche area. So it, um, it sent me off to... Um, uh, to get some additional skills, which I, I must admit I wasn't overly uh, thrilled with. In, in my mind, my career was still very much fixed in combat engineering terms. Um, I enjoyed doing the close support, armoured type stuff, you know, with the with the combat engineer units. That was where I felt my specialist skills and experience uh, was better suited. Uh, but like I say, the Royal Engineers had uh, had other plans for me, so it was off to um, to do a, a bomb disposal course followed very, very quickly by a 
a high-risk search course to become a, an advanced search advisor, uh, and then I took over one of the troops in the uh, in the EOD regiment. And very quickly, very soon into my tenure with the unit, the Kosovo uh, conflict popped up. At the time, there was lots of UN-type um, missions that were monitoring the activities in Kosovo at the time. And you may remember there was a, uh, a Kosovo verification mission that was ongoing. It was a, uh, an OSCE organization. So it was an organization for the security of cooperation in Europe was the organization that was had the responsibility for monitoring the compliance with the sort of ceasefire that had uh, that had been signed in Kosovo. But there was a concern that those monitors, and I think there's about two and a half thousand of them at various stages that were in Kosovo, that potentially if the situation was going to escalate uh, and reignite into uh, open conflict, that those OSCE monitors would be uh, very much at risk. And so NATO put in a uh, a mission, which was known as the Kosovo Extraction Force, uh, which was basically going to sit in a neighbouring country um, and be prepared to um, to drive across the border in extremists uh, and rescue all these OSCE monitors and bring them back into uh, into a safe neighbouring country. So it was a, a very strange and I don't think very well known operation. It was known as uh, Operation Upminster, and it was fairly small in size and it consisted of uh, a UK battle group, an Italian battle group. I think it was a German battle group, all commanded by a French headquarters. All those component parts of that Kosovo extraction force were based in neighbouring Macedonia. And so it, very, very quickly, this organisation was um, uh, was stepped up, was established. And it was decided that for the UK component, it would be centred on a company of warrior-based um, King's Own Royal Border Regiment, uh, who sadly no longer exist, but company of those guys based in Warrior um, with a troop of Royal Engineers in close support to provide that close support comm engineer capability. And then because of the anticipated explosive ordnance problem that they would encounter as they were driving across the border, uh, they were augmented with two bomb disposal officers, of which I was one of them. Um, so it was a, a very small EOD components, only uh, four of us in total, um, that were there based in uh, armoured fighting vehicles provided by the close support engineer troop. And the idea was that we would, uh, in an emergency, let's say, drive through the Kachinik defile from Macedonia into Kosovo and then drive up to Pristina, taking on anybody that got in our way. And that was the Pristina airfield was going to be the place where all these OSCE monitors would congregate, uh, at which point there we would get them all into our vehicles or using their own existing vehicles and then we would escort them back out the way we came in and take them to a safety in neighbouring Macedonia. Did you get much of a chance to cross train with the other country's engineers in that battle group or were you pretty much self-contained on your own? No, so the way it worked was that each of the sort of three company groups, so the, the UK, the Germans and the uh, Italians would take time at being at, at readiness. So at any time there was, you know, almost immediate notice to move, there'd be this company group. Um, so there were periods of time where if we weren't on high readiness, then we, we were able to do lots of training. And the French put us through quite a rigorous training regime which they then assessed our capabilities to make sure that we then uh, had achieved a certain level of competence. 
uh, and capability. So there was lots of opportunities for us to train with our Italian and German counterparts, which was really good. So the French would put on lots of scenario-based exercises and tasks, which as EOD teams, we would then inevitably have to come in. And it was normally based on you know a road traffic incident, vehicle had strayed into a mined area, or there'd be some casualties and that we would have to then breach our way into the uh, the minefield, get the casualties, get them back out, administer first aid, um, and then get them casually backed out. So some, some really good, very realistic training because in our eyes, you know, there's, there's nothing more that focuses the mind in training than thinking these are the skills that and the scenarios that we are going to face more than likely in the next com- you know few weeks. So and did you really pro- professionally these guys? It's interesting to see that even in niche capability areas such as explosive ordnance disposal, that different countries still had different approaches to solving the same problems. And that on occasion, we would look at maybe the way the French were going about their casualty extraction. And and we would kind of go, well, that's just not the way that we would do it. And we would adopt a, a, a slightly different way that might have been slower, but in our minds, safer. And there's always that dilemma in what we do, isn't there, about how much safety do you trade off for speed and potentially getting in there and saving somebody's lives. And that's that's not an easy judgment to make. But ultimately, if you can't be safe as the person who's going in, then you're just going to create more casualties. So it's that kind of thing about first aid, isn't it? Don't become a casualty yourself. It's got to be a... Mm one of the primary considerations. So I think it was interesting to see the different approaches from different countries who were equipped with different gear. Sometimes that would force you down a certain route. But I certainly came away from that with a, absolutely a respect for, for other NATO countries, but equally a quiet confidence that we were very, very proficient at what we did. Felt that we probably had the edge and a lot of that is probably just because of our prior experience in, you know, that foundation level of stuff that we, we got from Northern Ireland, you know, 30 years of, of honing those EOD and search skills in Northern Ireland stood us in good stead in those subsequent campaigns that we found ourselves in uh, in, in the next few decades. And, and I think, yeah, certainly in my experience of Bosnia uh, a couple of years before uh, really gave me the confidence to make some uh, I think some some good judgments and decisions, certainly in the exercises that we participated in. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
So after Kosovo, what was next? Uh, well, it's back out to Bosnia, actually, the following year. The squadron that I was uh, part of at the time was um, a very unique unit. It, it, it had a, an EOD capability, but it also was the, the British Army's um, premier high-risk search uh, unit as well. So it had a quite a broad mandate of liabilities, which it had to provide manpower against. So... A lot of the UK operations, so the counter-terrorist type stuff, supporting the police with military capabilities came from that squadron. But at the time, we were still providing a, a, an EOD capability, an EOD detachment uh, in Bosnia. Now, that rotated around the various subunits in the regiment at the time. Um, but we still, as a, as a squadron, still had to, to take our turn at, at, uh, at the helm in, in Bosnia. So we were we were trying to keep... Uh, our skills balanced in, in, in honing our high-risk search skills for UK operations and also keep our skills honed for EOD for deployed operations. Uh, and so in 2000, uh, I took the troop across back to Bosnia to complete a six-month tour of um, providing that sort of integral EOD support to the, the British area of operations. So that basically involved splitting the troop up into three four-man detachments uh, and sending them into three different locations. So we had a, a detachment in Banja Luka up in the north, uh, a detachment in Grad, and a detachment in Sipovo. The detachment in Sipovo would be on the incident response team. Um, so that was a uh, seeking helicopter uh, at permanent readiness, readiness uh, at the hospital in Sipovo uh, to provide that emergency medical response uh, in the event of a casualty situation, anticipating that most of those casualty situations would, were likely to be road traffic incidents where vehicles had left the hard surface. So therefore, we would always assume that there would be a potential explosive ordnance problem to solve uh, in getting those casualties out. So as part of that incident response team, there would always be a four-man EOD team uh, to support the medical assets that are on board that helicopter as well. And then we would rotate around. We'd do two, week in it, two weeks in each of those locations and then change around because uh, being at sort of immediate notice to move for, um, for a prolonged period of time could, could clearly, um, uh, you'd start to degrade your performance over a period of time. So it's nice to then have a break from that and go and do a different type of EOD role in a different location. So it just kept you fresh, which was great. And I take it you're quite lightly equipped in this role. Well, might, you, you wouldn't have had wheelbarrow or anything like that. For listeners who might not know, wheelbarrow is like a little Caterpillar track vehicle with a shotgun mounted on it and a grab arm and a camera. You're right. So there's EOD is broadly, I said broadly, uh, broken down into sort of two distinct capability areas. We have the, the improvised explosive device disposal, which is what most people are familiar with from films like The Hurt Locker. It's the guy in the big EOD suit, the robot, the remote control vehicles that you're talking about there, this this large kind of uh, remote control vehicle with Caterpillar tracks uh, and some weapons on the front that a lot of people were very familiar with from Northern Ireland, for example. Uh, and then on the flip side to that, we've got conventional munitions disposal, which is what primarily we were doing in, in the Balkans, which is dealing with conventional items of ordnance, such as mines, such as booby traps, or projectiles, rockets, bombs that have been, been fired or projected, but have just failed to function through various uh, reasons, whether they're a blind or a misfire. So those are the sort of, in, in big handfuls, the two sort of distinct different capability areas that sit within EOD. 
in the Balkans, clearly our focus was on conventional munitions. Um, there was very, very little threat from improvised uh, devices. Uh, we did have remote control vehicles deployed with us. We only had two, and they were centrally held uh, at Mekonichgrad. They were a slightly different variation, though they were wheeled, not the track version, which most people are familiar with. And we only ever used that particular version in uh, in the Balkans, never in uh, any other uh, uh, area of operations. They were kind of a small procurement based on a very specific requirement at the time, which then never transferred into other areas so you're absolutely right colin we were we were very lightly particularly in the irt role when we were deploying out of a helicopter we were very limited what equipment we could take and it was very much just a day sack with some explosives in there some detonators some accessories and your, your trusty mine prodder and some some tape uh, and other bits and bobs that that would enable you to if you had to get on your belt buckle and do your look feel prod into the minefield out to the casualty um, immediate first aid and then extract so Nothing majorly high tech, but depending on what you encounter along the way is then how you then respond to the particular threat you you, you find. Rather you than me. All well, I've often said the same thing about you guys digging, living in holes in the ground <laughs> and, uh, and doing what you guys get up to uh, for long periods of time. So it, each their own, I dare say. <laughs> well, we had to do that. Do you remember, Colin, we used to do that engineer's course, the, the, the Dems course we used to have to go and do uh, yeah. at Hamel. And all I remember was all night spent doing minefield breaching the minefield to get through a minefield and the, obviously the royal engineers obviously put us through our because obviously we're gunners put us through our paces so i spent all night in the rain prod feeling prod feeling all the way through trying to mark mines and find a path all the way through i'm not sure if they kept us out there all night on purpose i i, I dread to think and do you remember do you remember that standard royal engineer Piss take these to do as careful when you're doing the calculations for, ex- for explosives. Just yeah. use P for plenty. P for plenty. <laughs> yeah, we still use it. <laughs> I think what, what I find really interesting um, is the specialist search capabilities. When you've, you know, we talked about before about in Northern Ireland, we had specialist search, but how that has developed in your time, especially with the Royal Engineers and how you've become the world experts, I, I think. In, in this capability, EOD quite often and understandably takes takes a lot of the focus because ultimately people are familiar with the guy in the bomb suit or the robot going down and, and rendering something safe. Quite often the searchers always were the unsung heroes. I think a lot of what happened in Afghanistan changed the kind of perception as well because all of a sudden everybody was doing search in some form. You know the the pathfinder, the guy with the Valen metal detector up front lead man in a patrol is doing search. You know, he's using systematic procedures and appropriate detection equipment to find specified targets. And and I think there was a massive exposure to those types of skills across the army. And therefore... Do you not recognise... Sorry to interrupt, but do you not recognise or some of the skills were, were knowledge regained in that... Using the analogy you used for Afghanistan, the same analogy could have been applied to Northern Ireland with your five and 20 metre checks done by everybody in the patrol. And then, you know, the Royal Engineer search team would come out on an op to support you if something was found. So it's just same skills, maybe with a bit more technology. Is that a, a fair thing to say? Yeah, technology uh, has to keep pace with, you know, our technology that we employ has to keep pace with the technology that the, um, the terrorists or the insurgents or the enemy is um 
is employing. Uh, and quite often they have the drop on us and we have to adapt very quickly to, to new and emerging threats. But I think you're absolutely right is that the, the, those core skills that, and the procedures that we honed to put us in a really good place to meet those threats that we encountered in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, those were honed and developed in South Armagh, in Londonderry and in Belfast, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, search kind of goes back to, has its roots really in sort of Palestine in sort of like the late 1940s when, you know, we had troops that were there doing cordon and search operations of, of putting a cordon in place, going into these areas uh, and, and, and using systematic procedures to try and locate um, weapon caches and, and other bits and bobs. So there was a bit of a genesis, I think, back in those days. But then it nobody really recognised it as a, as a discrete capability until Northern Ireland days when... EOD assets can only do so much. You know, you've got one man and a robot effectively, um, and that there's only they're very limited in what areas they can search and clear. So there needed to be a, a supplementary capability which came and supported not only EOD operations but also those troops, as you pointed out, Colin, that were just patrolling. Uh, you know picking up on five and 20 meter checks before you go to ground and take up a fire position that you just do, you know, you look in the immediate vicinity of five meters, make sure there's nothing untoward, uh, looking for the presence of the abnormal and the absence of the normal. Those types of little telltale signs that you develop that spider sense, you know, that the hairs on the back of your neck, something just doesn't look right. And that only comes with, with experience of operating in those areas that you, you do kind of pick up a sense of, this just doesn't feel right. It doesn't smell right to me, so I'm not going to do it or I'm going to change my fire position. I'm going to move my location. And, and I think the way that um, we operated in Northern Ireland and developed procedures, honed those skills, got some equipment in that, that gave us that, that capability to counter whatever threats the provisional IRA or any other terrorist organization would, would present us with, that we could very quickly develop new uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and, and remain on the front foot, so we could retain the initiative. So I think, so I think you're absolutely right. Those thirty odd years that we spent in Northern Ireland and honing those skills, which we then transferred into those other conflicts, without doubt, has allowed us to develop what we term as search. Not only is it a specialist capability that sits with the Royal Engineers, but all arms conduct it as, as well, albeit with slightly different equipment. So it's, it's very scalable. It's really, really useful, uh, life-saving capability. But it's often the, let's say, the, the unsung capability because it's, it's about finding stuff. But the skills that the Royal Engineers hone, like I say, I was in this uh, specialist search squadron at the time, and some of the young soldiers that were in that unit were just phenomenal at what they did. You know, they really embraced it and they became exceptionally good at what they did. And I think a lot of what they did was because they re they responded to having large amounts of responsibility thrust on their very young shoulders. And I think this is, and I've always had an interest in, in, in your unit as well. And I think there's a lot of parallels in, in the two units because you're operating in very small teams. And even though there's a hierarchy, it's, it's a closer bond that exists between the sort of lower ranks and, and the, the senior ranks because you're very much reliant on each other to do, to do your job. 
Um, mm. But the lower the lower ranks get an awful lot of responsibility thrust on their shoulders, and they respond to it. They respond to it in a, in a really positive way that they then embrace it and go looking for more responsibility. And I certainly found that the young soldiers from that particular unit invariably had a uh, a more rewarding and they they went further in the military than a lot of the other young soldiers in some of the other units that I belong to because they responded positively to having responsibility given to them at a very low level and young age. And I think that's that's probably the similar for um, for your battery as well. These specialist skills, and again, we've we've spoke about this before. About it's not just on military operations that you that this capability is employed. Perhaps tell us a little bit more about your support to the civilian contingencies. Yeah, sure. So I think most people will who are old enough will remember the uh, the Brighton bomb in 1984 when the IRA almost wiped out Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. And as a result of that particular event, the uh, police realised that they needed some of the skills that the military had honed in, in Northern Ireland, as we previously discussed. So there's a, a cross-government initiative whereby the Home Office and the Ministry of Defence combined and, and formed a, a joint military and, and police training centre. And it was known as the, the National Search Centre, uh, which I got posted to as, a, as an instructor in the, uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and this was as I say, in recognition that there was the police needed some of these search skills that the military had managed to obtain in Northern Ireland. And also they needed, they were heavily reliant on the EOD skills that we have and the search skills. So the unit that I belonged to had a number of troops that were held at readiness to support homeland security operations conducted by the police. So if there was, so uh, some of the standing commitments that we would get involved with would be to search the hotels and the venues of the party political conferences. So whenever the Conservative Party would go and hold their annual conference in maybe Brighton or Bournemouth or Blackpool, uh, you would find that troops would deploy to those locations, conducting search of those hotel rooms where the prime minister might be staying, or those meeting rooms where the cabinet might be meeting, or the main venue whereby there'd be keynote speak speakers delivering their speeches to the party. So this this kind of paradox, I guess, of, you know, one minute you've got a bomb disposal role in Bosnia, um, and then a matter of months later, you find yourself uh, operating alongside the police in Bournemouth and Blackpool. Um, it, it was it just to me it kind of typifies the diversity and range of Royal Engineer skills and roles um, that we had at that time and, and still enjoy today. So the police became very much reliant on us for our EOD capabilities and our search capabilities. And that led us into a, a whole range of of really interesting jobs as well. We had some specialist equipment like ground penetrating radar, which the police at the time didn't have. Very expensive piece of equipment. So if they can get it from the military, why buy it themselves? So we would get called into all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful police investigations. I remember myself getting, I was on a, a pager, noticed to move and, uh, and got tasked to go and support the um, the flying squad from the Metropolitan Police Service in looking for the Brinks Mac Gold Bullion which had been believed to have been buried in a, a hardware yard down in Hastings. Um, so again, you kind of find yourself as a small team, blue lighting down to Hastings, getting out your specialist equipment, working alongside, you know, the flying squad. Lots of lots of tasks similar to this. That the, Did the you guys find out it's nice? I couldn't possibly did say. Find, did, 
<laughs> he's, he's I like your softens you're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> but this, it, it was great for our for our young soldiers at the time because you know you join the army to fulfil a certain role, I guess, and and then you find yourself uh, specialising and then getting involved in all sorts of different types of tasks which you never would have envisaged when you were going through basic training, when you're on your belt buckle in the rain, in the mud, doing your look field prod through a minefield. Um, and then you find yourself operating at some quite sort of senior strategic levels, uh, adding some real value to those homeland security operations, which allow events, high profile events to to pass um, with confidence and, and, and safety. Um, we, we used to send regularly up to the Grand National. Uh, I don't know if you remember, there was one year where the Grand National was cancelled because there was an IRA bomb warning that came in and they had to evacuate the whole race course and the, the, the event never took place. And the government lost an incredible amount of money in betting tax alone that year. So the subsequent years, the Royal Engineers would be tasked to go and conduct a search of various parts of the grounds. And inevitably, the bomb warning would come in and we would all look at each other in the police control room and go, right, is everybody happy? Have we done everything we possibly can do? There's a coded bomb warning. It's come in to say that 3.30, this device is going to function. Is everybody happy that, um, that our procedures are watertight enough and that we have got the confidence to ignore that coded bomb warning? We would look at each other in the eye. And we would go, yes, to the police silver or gold commander. And then they would make the judgment not to evacuate. And then we'd all be nervously looking at our watches at 3.30. Uh, and then 3.35, we'd breathe a sigh of relief and go and collect our winnings. That just shows oh. you the trust and professionalism yeah, that the police had in your that. capability. And every time yeah. you do it that way, and, and that trust just continues to build, but also the re- they, they become more and more reliant on that skill set. Yeah, and it, it's developed, and the police have developed their own skill set. You know, They have become exceptionally professional at, at at developing their own search capability. But inevitably, most routine search tasks that the police will get involved in will be things like, you know, it'd be criminal activity, looking for murder weapons, looking for missing persons, looking for intelligence, you know, money, stolen goods, that type of thing. As soon as it has an explosive element to it, um, they tend to lean very heavily on, on the military because clearly we've got far more experience in that than they have. Working collaboratively in that multi-agency environment so that we are absolutely comfortable and you're spot on, Kev, with this trust-based relationships amongst those those assets so that the fire brigade know what we do and what we can bring to the party, that the ambulance service and health know what we do and understand how we're going to operate, and likewise the police. And that's particularly relevant when we're talking about um, those sort of chemical, biological and radiological scenarios, you know, those those dirty bomb radiological dispersal device, worst case scenario, terrorist type devices, which we, we exercise against um, to make sure that we can Come the come the day that we can all operate very collaboratively. We can talk to each other on common radios. We're familiar with each other's procedures, and that those people who are in those decision-making roles have all operated with each other previously in exercise scenarios. So that when you're having to make a bold decision, you can look at each other in the eye and with confidence turn around and say, "I agree with that decision because I've worked with that guy before and he knows his stuff." That's absolute gold dust when you're in those sort of um, responsible decision-making positions. What are you doing today? 
So I think you pointed out, Kev, earlier on that um, the UK is generally seen as uh, world leading in this in this sort of area of what we now term as counter explosive ordnance. Uh, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And a lot of other countries see the UK as as being world leaders. They recognise the the depth and the breadth of experience that we've got built on those foundations in Northern Ireland that was transferred into those other other areas of operations. And so we get a lot of um, requests for UK military support to go and help other countries, trusted partner nations, develop their own capabilities in either search or bomb disposal or ammunition management, whatever it might be. Unfortunately, the uh, the British Army is is so small these days and its pool of experts that are able to provide that training is is even smaller and those that we have got are very heavily committed as we pointed out earlier on to to those standing commitments of supporting uk homeland security operations or even sat at readiness ready to to deploy overseas um so previously we've um the mod has had to turn around and say look I know you need our help, but we haven't got the capacity to provide some support at the moment. So uh, what the MOD has, has done now is is, is stood up a, a small team um, of specialists who are able to take those demand signals from partner countries and outsource the requirement to UK industry. So there are a number of defence uh, industry companies in the UK. Uh, many of them of, are manned by ex-UK military. Many of them have the same sort of skill sets and same experiences that I have. And what we now have is the ability for the Ministry of Defence to receive those demand signals. And instead of saying we'd love to help but can't, we now outsource that to these companies uh, who sit on a framework of pre-approved Ministry of Defence suppliers so that we can very quickly um, go through the commercial processes and get these companies on contract to go out overseas and provide these capacity building projects to partner nations. As you'd expect, we have a vested interest in making sure that you know Somalia or Nigeria or Ghana is as secure and stable as we possibly can make it so that the terrorist threat doesn't migrate across sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So it's in the UK's vested interest to provide that level of support to those countries so that they can have their own capabilities to defeat and counter the explosive ordnance threats that they face. So through the team that I'm now a part of, we sit in the Ministry of Defence uh, and we will receive those demand signals. We will go to those countries. We will qualify those demand signals to make sure that we know exactly what the requirement is. We will write up that requirement uh, and then put an invitation to tender out to industry. And then we will receive those tender submissions and award a contract for a UK company to go out and deliver on behalf of the Ministry of Defence a particular uh, capacity building contract which we will then assure to make sure it's delivered to a UK MOD standard. It's, everybody's a winner out of this. The partner nation gets a, uh, a life-saving, non-contentious capability, which makes them more secure and stable. UK industry benefits through the prosperity agenda by making their companies flourish, 
Uh, and the and the MOD is is no longer having to say no to all these requests, but can say yes, absolutely, and we're going to push this towards some veterans who are using the incredible amount of expertise and experience that they have gained and applying that overseas to UK benefit. Thank you very much for coming on to this podcast. It was outstanding. I, I like I say, I, we've known each other for, for many years, but to, to understand the, the story of the Royal Engineers, where it came from, and then moving to the specialism is, um, is, def- is a fascinating story. But as usual, we finish off with our Desert Island Dits which is the guest choice of book, film and luxury item. So, Nigel, for this episode, what have you chosen? So, my book choice is a book called Arrows of Fortune. And it's a, a book written by a guy called Tony Dean Drummond. And, you know, I'm a bit of a World War II kind of historian. I love my World War II history. And, and this book is just off the chart in terms of what this guy went through in in his military career. So Tony Dean Drummond uh, retired as a uh, a two-star general. Post-war, he was the commanding officer of 2-2 SAS during the Malayan campaign uh, in the Jebel Akhtar in, in, I think, 1958. But it's his, his World War II career. He was a Royal Signals officer who volunteered for the commandos and took part in one of the very first commando raids where they parachuted into Italy to, to blow up a viaduct. In common with a lot of those early sort of behind enemy lines raids, it went tragically wrong and he was taken prisoner. He managed to escape, managed to make his way all the way to the Swiss border where he was recaptured. Back in prison, he, he feigned an illness to get into the hospital because he knew it was going to be harder to easier to escape from. And then over successive nights, he had to sh- escape through his window and shuffle along a ledge several stories up to then get in through a window into a toilet further down the corridor in the hope that the door would have been left unlocked. And I think he did this for about a week before he finally found the door unlocked and was able to make his escape. Um, finally gets back to the, to, to the UK just in time to get posted to 1st Airborne Division and get sent on Operation Market Garden to Arnhem. <laughs> Obviously, we all know the was tragic his ne- story. Was his nickname Lucky? <laughs> <laughs> we all know the story about how the, the comms failed. So he, rather than sit back at Div headquarters, he went forward and took command of a, a depleted rifle company in one of the parachute battalions. And then their position got overrun. And himself and three others locked themselves in a downstairs toilet uh, and stayed there in a German fortified position, locked in this downstairs toilet for, I think it was three days, the four of them just rotating around, taking it in terms in having the opportunity to, to sit on the toilet and take the weight <laughs> off their legs. Um, when they finally deemed it safe to, to open the door and, and, and escape, um, he was taken prisoner again and was um, all the prisoners at the time were put in this big, uh, this big hallway. And he, he identified that there was a cupboard which he could hide in. So he, he, he locked himself in this cupboard and uh, anticipating no, no longer probably staying there for a couple of hours or something like that. But the Germans then reoccupied the uh, the building and he stayed in this cupboard, which was, I think, about two feet wide by about six inches deep. And he stayed in that cupboard for 11 days. Oh, my God. <laughs> before he finally uh, felt confident enough to, to step out and then make his way in the darkness, swam over the river, the lower Rhine again, and, and make his way back to, to British lines. So just in terms of one man's fortitude, resilience, dedication, sense of duty. I just think Tony Dean Drummond, for me, 
is head and shoulders above anybody else that I've kind of ever read about for the for what he was willing to put himself through rather than do what many of us would have done, which is just gone, do you know what? I've had enough. Uh, and, and, and wrap it and, and just put your hands up and walk out into captivity. He never succumbed to those kind of feelings. And I think that's an amazing story. So I would I would say to anybody, if you're looking for a real boy's own story of somebody, uh, Tony Dean Drummond, Arrows of Fortune. Yeah, that's epic. I hadn't heard of that one, so I'll have to look that one up. Uh, my film choice, I'm a sucker for a John, Wills, John Mills black and white movie. So for me, it's Ice Cold in Alex, uh, which really, really captures the essence of the Western desert uh, in those sort of 1941, 1942, fall of Tobruk days. And, and I think that his his performance, and you really kind of get behind that, that epic journey across the Katara Depression in that clapped old, old ambulance, you know, all the trials and tribulations along the way, and, and the classic bit where the, the female nurse lets go of the crank and handle and the, and the ambulance rolls back down the hill. I think we can all put ourselves in that position and just want to burst into tears and just wrap it at that moment. But they picked themselves up and just kind of recocked, replanned and went again. So for me, Ice Cold and Alex is my film choice. I've yeah, got, choice, I've got mate. a trivia pursuit. I've got a trivia pursuit question on it, right? The guy that played the German, Anthony Quinn? Anthony yeah. Quayle. Anthony Quayle served in the SOE in the Second World War. Correct. He did, yeah. Uh-huh. Yugoslavia. Absolutely. Yeah, bang on, Kev. Well, I've got I've got another one quick one for her. I think then, Sylvia Sims, the female actress, her daughter was Heather and Highlander. That's your yeah, that, right. It's I'm not as good as your SOE one. But it's a <laughs> no, trivial. no, I'm not having that. Anyway, luxury <laughs> item. Colin, you're absolutely right. I, I knew that fact as well. Um, nice but, one, yeah. mate. No, I've never met anybody else who knew that fact. So nice. One. <laughs> no, no one else cared. Anyway, <laughs> luxury item. I feel a bit guilty about calling this a luxury item because for me it's more of an essential item and that's that's a role of Harry Black. I think no matter what job you do in the military, you know, the, the, the uses of this sticky piece of cloth, uh, which is essentially what it is, it, it's just phenomenal. So many uses. In, in EOD alone, you know, we use it to tape detonating cord junctions. We use it to put detonators onto detonating cord. We use it to, to mold plastic explosive. Uh, we even use it as a, as a very crude sighting mechanism on the end of our EOD weapons that are mounted on our remote control vehicles um, to get the right required standoff against uh, an improvised explosive device. So this, this one piece of sticky cloth, the uses are incredible. And I think if no matter what role or what circumstances you find yourself in, uh, having a role of Harry Black is is absolutely going to make your life easier. Yeah, I agree with that. Colin, your book choice this week? Well, I haven't chosen a book, but what I've chosen is... Now, I know you've chosen a book about the SS, and I know that Nigel earlier on mentioned Sven Hassel. And what I'm going to just have a little... T- I think we're living in an era where we're spoiled for choice with history books, so much so that it's changed a lot of my perceptions. Now, a while back, Kev sent me a clip about an infantry battalion down in Dover. I can't, was it Green Jackets, Kev? And anyway, there was a scene in there where they go in the block, it's like a 12-man room, and one of the guys has got a Waffen SS poster on there. And I was reading below the comments, and all those people were saying, oh, he's a Nazi and despicable and all that sort of thing. But 
Back in the 80s, if I remember rightly, and don't know what it's like the engineer's knowledge, but a lot of time we looked upon the Wehrmacht and the SS in the Second World War as the epitome of professionalism, and that was down to a lot of the historical accounts. And now you've got books like the, that one about the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry by James Holland that you've read as well, Nige. Mm-hmm. And you realise that wasn't the case. You know, we just fought war a lot more differently. And actually the Germans weren't as professional as history books through the 60s and 70s and into the early 80s would um, would make out. Uh, and I just wondered, Nige, after reading that book about the Sherwood Romany, what your thoughts were. It's a really interesting point because I think similar to you, Colin, growing up and reading those books, we did tend to put the Germans on a bit of a pedestal, I think because of certainly the early successes they had in the Blitzkrieg in 1940. And then and then after that, our focus was very much in the Western Desert where you had Rommel and the Africa Corps. And Rommel, the myth of Rommel that grew up so that, you know, the British soldiers revered Rommel you know the German forces were known as Rommel collectively so certainly my own reading certainly as a boy of of very much captured my imagination of that Africa Corps and 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 then on the flip side to that I wasn't interested in the politics that surrounded the SS they just looked great in their black uniforms with the death heads uh, emblem so it's very easy to be to be captured by you know your imagination to be to be captured by these SS units who appear to have all the best equipment. You know, the Tiger tank was uh, was just this iconic figure of, of, of the time. Uh, but it really is interesting. Now you start to read other books and you realise that, that it was a bit of a myth and that we, we were reacting, but reacting very, very quickly and adjusting to different types of warfare. And so it is interesting now to see this um, different, perception of those German units uh, and the flaws rather than just being this invincible unit that was was only ultimately defeated by scale American industrial might which yeah. which is is, is a myth because that you know there's numerous accounts of where British units against German units would um, would account themselves exceptionally well look at the second world war. There was a mystique about some of the German units. There was a mystique about the Japanese being the best jungle fighters. And they were myths. And it was something that I don't know where they grew up from. I don't know where it started. But they they became, you know, if you look at the Japanese, 14 Army obviously eventually defeated them. But we countered that. When you, I mean, I mean we got a, we're doing an episode about the Chindits, which people have got various views about the success of. But it did destroy the mystique of the Japanese. Deep penetration patrols into 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 Japanese-held territory. They took the fight to the Japanese. And I think Second World War was exactly the same. Well, the war in Europe was the same because the Germans had driven forward and we were on a bit of a back foot and we were always stepping back. But we did do the commando raids. We did do these small actions which were very successful and daring. We, we undersell ourselves, perhaps. Yeah, no, I agree. And... That's my way of saying that we're in a golden age of a lot of decent, really good history books, and uh, a lot of them have completely made me turn around my thoughts on uh, how we fought the Second World War. And just Nigel hinted at it, the whole industrialization. When you look back and now, the Germans were never going to win because they weren't an industrialized society, you know. And it's uh, I could go on and on about it, but I commend a lot of James Holland stuff that really made me rethink 
uh, the Second World War and our part in it. So, Kev, your choice, I've already sort of given a hint out, it's about the SS. Yes, it's a, it's a book called um, The SS, A Warning From History by a guy called Guido Knopp. Hopefully I've said that right. He tries to explain, to get us to understand the, the Nazi state and where the SS grew from uh, as a minor political, small, unpaid bodyguard into a force which dominated the racial, cultural and professional spheres of German society. And I think we've talked about before is how did the whole of Germany get swept along with this idea? And, and he tries to explain this. So he talks about the SS, he talks about the Waffen-SS, he talks about uh, Pacific units being brought in and, and formed to run concentration camps and death camps. It looks at the military formation you know, fighting the Allies in Normandy. So it talks about this professionalised force with some of the best equipment as well. But it also talks a little bit about post-war, how Germany looked post-war. The Nazi peace hadn't completely gone away and still hasn't. And there's a chapter called The Odessa Factor, which if you read it, it talks about the 70s, where there were still, obviously, lots of ex-Nazis still in states, still in position of power in Germany, or West Germany as it was post-war, and moving across Europe and into other countries. I thought it was quite interesting to look at the influence, and, and the influences it has an impact today as well on some of the far-right groups. But part of the reason we thought the Germans had that myth surrounding them was because we let them write a lot of their own history, the likes yes. of some of the... I know he wasn't an SS, but the likes of Guderian. I mean, he was writing staff books for the Americans, and he was given the chance to sanitise his own part in the war, and that happened yep. quite a bit. Yep. You know, and a lot of the, the history was overlooked and, and didn't get the forensic examination that didn't, it didn't really should have got. It, you know, it, it, I'm not sure there was an appetite post-Second War, but we had the Nuremberg Trials, which obviously focused on the top end of the leadership. But we have to accept that there was lots of Nazis that had disbanded from the armed forces and went back into society. And you needed them, otherwise you end up with yes. Iraq. We disband yeah. the whole army. Absolutely, and absolutely. But, think, but that mindset was still bubbling away. It was still there. It was interesting uh, that that George Patton actually, when he was like governor of Bavaria, he was a strangely a big advocate of retaining Nazi officials um, and not just anybody that had any Nazi sympathies or was associated with the regime of just getting rid of them, you know, wiping the slate clean. You know, he was he was saying, no, no, this that's the wrong thing to do. You know, these guys are capable and we need to retain these people to get this country back on its feet because actually we may be fighting the Russians. That that was where his, he saw the biggest threat coming from, was from the Soviets. Yeah. So it's bizarre that he spent most of, it, most of the war, you know, issuing profanities about the Germans and what he was going to do to them. Yeah. But actually when the fighting was finished... He actually had a different outlook, which ultimately cost him his job. And he yeah. was being sent back to the US, um, having been sacked by Eisenhower, because he continually spouted those views about Nazism. And he got killed in a car crash, didn't he? I think, was that right, Patton? Yeah, he was He was travelling back from a hunting trip and, a, and a, a vehicle slid down and banged into his, his staff car. Nobody else, there was two other people in the staff car none of them were hurt but he got catapulted forward i think hit his forehead on the the seat or the glass between him and his driver and uh, i think either snapped his neck or caused some kind of clot subsequently and he died several days later 
Well, on that cheery note then, that's, <laughs> it, for another, <laughs> that's it for another episode. So really interesting, mate. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Pleasure. And uh, also thanks again to the listener for your continued support and suggestions. And as usual, keep them coming. And uh, you can see all our social media links at the bottom of the show notes. You can find all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us and uh, from one of those sort of platforms, give us a review, please. It's great for bringing in other uh, listeners. Finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continued support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company ISA. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Mm-hmm.